worthy is the Lamb. Uh, seeing everyone who was able to make it yesterday for the fall festival. Lots of good chili and uh, some, some games and uh, fellowship were had. So thanks to all that helped organize that, the Young Moms uh, group that helped put that on. But I want to invite the Haiti team to, to come on. Maybe just, you don't need to come up on the stage, just maybe line up up, up here up front. Uh, everyone who's going to be going to Haiti. We just want to say a word of prayer for them, commit their time to the Lord. There's some good details in the bulletin, so, but I'm going to hand it over to, I think, Doug, and uh, I don't know if there's anything else to add from, from the team, but uh, yes, go ahead, Karen. here as a guest. Uh, if you're online, you can't, this doesn't apply to you, but if you're here as a guest, uh, there is, uh, on the bulletin, there's an extra f uh, folding uh, flap, and if you're a guest and this is like your very first time here, sure would appreciate it if you would take a moment or two to fill that out, and then you can kind of discreetly rip it off, or indiscreetly rip it off, and then put it in the offering box, which is on the table as you leave the sanctuary this morning. And if you're part of our regular church family, that is also for you. If you have a prayer request, or you want to express some uh, need, or uh, there's some boxes to check for getting involved, so I just wanted to make you aware of that. Uh, I need to, to pray, so I'm going to ask if you would Join me as we pray before we worship through the looking into his word. Father, um, you are so, so good, and uh, you do never fail, 
even though there are times in our lives uh, when we falter and when we struggle and we're challenged. Uh, the reality is you have never left us and you will never forsake us. I pray that you'd give us grace and strength to understand your word. I pray that your word would go forth and you would accomplish what you want to do in each of our hearts. Lord, it's your word. It's not man's word. And so I pray uh, that you would speak to our hearts. You'd bring about the change that you want. I pray that those who may not know you as their Lord and Savior would turn and their hard hearts would be softened and that they would be drawn to you and come to know you. I pray that those of us who know you as Lord and Savior would see the desperateness of our own condition from which we have been rescued and rejoice and also realize our vulnerability to fall. And I pray that you'd give us grace to keep trusting and watching and looking and resting in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Most of you are not going to know the name Bobby Knight, but some of us who are a little older will recognize his name as one of the historically popular and famous and successful basketball coaches. He was the head coach, basketball coach of Indiana University men's basketball team for several years, and he was notorious for losing his temper. There's one particular game, a especially memorable game for people who have seen it, and you can probably YouTube this. He actually, they have the, you know, the team and the coaches sit in these folding chairs that are along the edge of the court. And he picked up his chair and he threw it across the floor in the, in the, in the gymnasium. And when you think about uh, the, the, the wrath of someone, that's kind of like just losing it. And so this morning, as we look at this topic of God's wrath, I wonder if sometimes we, we aren't like, okay, that's God. He's just some sort of impetuous, vindictive, capricious being who just loses it on people. Nothing could be further from the truth. God's wrath is his righteous reaction to, refusal to condone and just judgment of evil which is required by his holiness. He's a holy and righteous God and so whenever his wrath is invoked it is in response to the wickedness or the sinfulness of mankind. So that's where he's coming from. And Paul in the letter to the Romans as we've just finished verses 1 through 17 we've seen the remedy for man's problem, which is the righteous by faith shall live. If we're righteous by faith, then we will live. We'll live forever, for eternity. If that begins the moment we put our faith or our trust in Christ. Now, he transitions in chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, to the malady which necessitates the remedy. And malady is just a fancy word for the disease. Okay. So the disease that necessitates the remedy of the righteous shall live by faith, the righteous by faith shall live, is our wickedness, is the guilt and, and, and the guilt that we deserve. All humanity is guilty, except for Jesus. Every human is guilty and deserves God's judgment, God's wrath. And so when he speaks to it, that's 
the re- that's the malady that requires the remedy. And so our lack of innocence, which makes the, the remedy necessary. I hope that's, I'm not losing you in that. Like, if you mess up, you deserve God's punishment. And the reality is we've all messed up. And so Paul's like going to go on this diatribe beginning in verse 18 of chapter 1 through the end of chapter 3, verse 20 to that verse, and he's going to prove the point. And the reality is that what he, he introduces it in chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, the, the, the problem we have. It, and it's an indictment against primarily the Gentiles, not exclusively them, because the things that he's going to talk about are true for all people, but he's focusing particularly on the Gentiles. Next week when Bob... Uh, shares in the beginning of chapter 2 he's going to you know kind of begin to see this dialogue between the Jews and the Gentiles and that further teased out in the end of chapter 2 so if you have your Bibles I want you to open them to Romans chapter 1 verses we're going to look at verses 18 through 32 Uh, and in this section Paul highlights three facts about God's wrath to magnify to amplify the disastrous consequences of, of mankind's unbelief in order to motivate us to repentance and faith in Christ, but also for those who know Christ to encourage us to understand the mercy of God in our own lives. I'm reading from the New American Standard Version, so there are some, some differences in the way things are translated, so just hang on there. You can follow along, uh, I think, on the on the screen up front, or just read in your Bibles, uh, your phone app, whatever you have. For the wrath of God is revealed, verse 18, chapter 1, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what, he has been, what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored among them, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to the degrading passions for their women, exchanged the natural function, and in the same way also men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. The first fact about God's 
wrath that we see in the text, or that I see in the text, is the revelation of God's wrath is declared. Okay? Straightforward. There are three facts to consider. First, the substance of his wrath. He says right from the beginning. He gives this four. And you see the word for, and it's like, well, what does that do? It connects us with what came previously, okay? The reason for justification by faith, which he's just talked about in verse 17, the reason for justification by faith, is, uh, is, is the reason it's needed is because of the wrath of God. So you read verse 18, and you go, for the wrath of God. Well, what about the wrath of God? The reason... We need to be justified by faith is because of the wrath of God. And then he goes on to talk about what's the wrath of God. It's his righteous anger. Okay, It's expressed in punishment uh, of evil. You think Jesus clearing the temple. He came into the temple and they were making a mockery of the temple. And so Jesus like cleaned them out. Was that unrighteous anger? No, it was his righteous anger. That mankind is utterly depraved, okay, that, that uh, utter depravity rightly deserves God's wrath and his penalty should awaken within us a desperate need for and an appreciation of his mercy. The fact that we are desperately wicked and because of it need and we'll receive his punishment should awaken within us to say, whoa, 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 I don't want that. And for those of us who are trusting in Christ, it should make us more fully appreciative of his mercy. We have a need for his mercy, and we are, who know Christ are so appreciative of his mercy. I think I've mentioned before, like when I was in junior high school, and uh, I'm not going to, well, I'm going to pick on Judy. You remember Mr. Spurbeck? Yeah, well, Mr. Spurbeck was, uh, I mean, he was like hardcore. I had to have knee surgery when I was uh, 13 years old, and I missed some classes, and I missed an assignment, and Mr. Spurbeck never made me turn in the assignment, and I still got an A in the class. I deserved uh, at least a zero or an F for that, for that assignment, but I got an A anyway. I was like, whoa. And Mr. Spurbeck was hardcore. So it was like, this was an act of mercy. And I was so appreciative for the mercy that I had received. And this is the idea. And this wrath is revealed. Now, revealed in the, in the sense here it, that it's used means it's constantly, but not always immediately, seen in the ongoing happenings of life. This is not primarily the talk about ultimate wrath judgment, although if people persist in what's being mentioned here, that's what the consequence is, okay? But it's like, here's the wrath of God is seen in the ongoing happenings and circumstances of life. Think Adam and Eve. What happened to Adam and Eve in the garden? Boom, you're out. That was the wrath of God, the judgment of God, the punishment of God. Think about the flood in Genesis 6 and 7. So wickedness of men resulted in the punishment by God. What's the source of the wrath? Well, it just says from heaven. Well, from heaven just means God. Okay, He's just kind of echoing it. The wrath of God from heaven is God's wrath from God. And then we see the scope of the wrath. It's against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. All. See, we we fail to meet up to God's standards. I mean, all 
unrighteousness and godism. And all of us fail all ways to meet up to God's standard. If we all went down to uh, downtown Des Moines and we stood on one side of the Des Moines River, okay, we're lined up on the side of Des Moines River. Okay, here's the deal, gang. We're going to jump across. We're going to jump to the other side. All right? Now, some of uh, you young bucks and uh, athletic young gals, you might make it a little further than the rest of us old folks or less athletic people. But guess what? We're all getting wet. We're all getting wet. That's who we are before God. We're all getting wet. We're all sinners. We're all failed to meet up to God's perfect standard. That's what it means. And God's anger isn't random. It's righteous and reasonable because we are not right with Him. And it's directed against ungodliness, which is just, well, it's kind of interesting, kind of self evident, right? Ungodliness means ungod, not God. It's not doing what God wants, okay? So it's not God stuff. Okay, unrighteousness, kind of the same thing. Not right. It's doing what's not right uh, by God's perfect standard. Colossians 3, 5, and 6 kind of uh, lays out for us. is therefore treat the parts of your earthly body as de- uh, de- Therefore, you treat the earthly body as de- dead to sexual immorality. Dead to impurity, to passion, to evil desire, and greed. These are the things we're not supposed to do. If you do ungodliness, then those are the things you do do. Unrighteousness. So human beings, the text says, I think, naturally suppress the truth. He says, against, his wrath comes against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, the ESV just says, uh, in their right, by their, righteous, by their uh, sin, they suppress the truth. In their unrighteousness, by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. The idea is, we do bad stuff, to keep the truth down. We hold it down. Um, go to the beach. Take a beach ball. Kind of hold it under the water. You know, we try to hold it down. Guess what? The beach ball doesn't stay there. Boom, boom, boom. Wickedness keeps coming up. The truth of God doesn't, cannot be eliminated. It can be held down for a while, but it comes up. But that's what we try to do. We try to hold it down. We try to hold down the truth of God's identity and the truth of our responsibility to God because of his identity. I don't want to do what God says. You know, that's the thing. It's like, you say, well, yeah, I've become a Christian, but then I, I, I can't have any fun. You know, I, I, I become a Christian, but then I got to stop doing some stuff that I know I shouldn't do or that I want to do. Well, that's suppressing the truth. I hold it down in unrighteousness. Jesus said it, and this is a partial quote of John 3, 19. Men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because our deeds are evil. And we want to live in the darkness. The unrighteous activity of, uh, you know, see, see, this is our disposition towards disobedience is the reason for God's wrath. Because we're predisposed to do what's against God is the reason for his wrath. And we suppress the truth. The, the unrighteous activity of abortion under the guise of women's reproductive health suppresses murderous truth. It's 
suppresses the truth of what it is. See, we realize our wickedness. And that's what he's talking about here. Deserves God's wrath. It should awaken within us a need for his mercy. I deserve it, God. What can I say? I deserve your wrath. And I desire your mercy. There's a second fact that we need to look at, and that is the reason for God's wrath. The reasons are detailed. Yeah, we know it's because he's, he's pursuing it because we do stupid stuff, but he, he details it more fully in the next few verses, beginning with verse 19. We see four reasons for God's wrath on those who are unrighteous. First of all, God's revelation of himself. In verse 19, uh, we see that, that all men are not innocent. And as one commentary I read, it says, all men are not innocent because not all men are not ignorant. Uh, we're not ignorant of God's existence and God's reality and God's truth. And so it says all men are not innocent because, we're not innocent because God made his reality and his truth evident. Verse 19 in the New American Standard says, because the God, wrath of God comes upon these people because that which is known about God is evident. All right? His reality and truth are evident. And they're evident predominantly in this context to the Romans who are without his word, right? The Gentile nations, they didn't have the word of God. The Jewish people had the word of God. They had the traditions. They had the verbal truth, but they didn't. And they're still responsible because they, it's true, is evident with them. Uh, I don't know how many of you have traveled uh, west on Interstate 80, uh, heading west out of the, out of the city. And there's all these, uh, there's, uh, they've got a swerve over here, there's signs, you know, change lanes, there's signs about 55 miles an hour speed limit, 55 mile an hour speed limit, 55 mile an hour speed limit. Well, if you're going 75 and you get a ticket, guess what? It was evident that you should be going 55. Because that's what all the signs say. They say 55. And so it's evident that God is real. It's evident that he is true. It's evident to even the, the worst of sinners that he is there. And verse 20 takes us further. For since, how is it that he's evident? How is it that we know? The four in verse 20 introduces an explanation of how in creation, God's invisible attributes are made visible. Which is kind of a conundrum, right? When you really think about it. God's invisible attributes are made visible in creation. They're clearly seen. And not only are they made visible, not only is the invisible made visible, it's made understandable, being clearly understood by that which has been made, is, the, is, is what the text says. And he says, his eternal power is not obscure, but it's obvious in what he created and what he sustains. I like what Job, in Job chapter 12, uh, verses 7 uh, through 10, it says this, but just ask the animals and have them teach you. 
and the birds of the sky and have them tell you or speak to the earth and have it teach you and have the fish of the sea tell you. Tell you what? Tell you about God and his creation. Who among these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? The animals, the bird, the earth, they're, they're, they're telling us that God did this. In whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. God did it. I think it's amazing to me that there are birds, God has made birds that can fly 500 miles without stopping across the Gulf of Mexico. That he's made golden eagles that can direct line of flight go 100 miles an hour. He's made peregrine falcons and other falcons that can dive bomb at 242 miles an hour. It's fascinating. It's amazing. God has made a system within the body that if I cut myself, that my blood will begin to coagulate and clot and and stop the bleeding. And all of it has to happen now. If it takes a million years for that to happen, guess what? I ain't here. And the world, as, as, as the psalmist says, uh, that you see, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no voice or language where their voice is not heard. Guess what? You can go to India, to Africa, to Asia, to Antarctica, and the world that God created is screaming. I did that. Not me, God. Okay. God did that. And not only is his divine power, but his eternal nature, his kindness and his goodness. In Acts chapter 14, uh, verse 17, we read this. Yet he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. You ate breakfast this morning, or maybe not. Maybe you're waiting for cookies after church. God did it. God brought the rain. God grew the crops. God does it. And he is, 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 is screaming at us. The heavens declare it. You see, to all but the most closed-minded, to all but the most spiritually blinded people, it's blatantly obvious. That God's power is in its intricacies and complexities and harmonies of creation scream of a design, a designer that made it. I mean, I remember sitting in, in, a, in a, a microbiology class in, in college, or actually it was an introductory science class, and we looked under the telescope and we're looking at single cell organisms. And we're like, wow. I mean, there's things moving around in there, and, and things smaller than a pinhead. And I didn't know this, but the flagellum, which is the engine, the motor for bacteria, did you know the engine of a, a bacterium has a U-joint? It can go in forward and reverse? Go figure that. It's because God did it. I like what uh, British astronomer Sir Ho- Fred Hoyle said. He, he said that believing the first cell originated by chance... It's like believing that a tornado swept through a junkyard filled with airplane parts and out came a 747. Okay, so we got an airplane junkyard and a tornado goes through and this is what we get. 
not happening. God is screaming. And the result of this, if, if, we, if we look at the text, he says at the end of verse 20, so that they are without excuse. So that all of mankind is without excuse. That's the result. The light of God's revelation. This is the, this is the okay, stop and take a breath here. The light of God's general revelation in creation is enough to sentence people to hell for not seeing and then submitting to the God who made it possible. The catch is, it's not enough evidence for them to go to heaven. Because for that, they need what? The righteous by faith shall live. They need to put their faith and the trust in Christ because if they don't put their belief, they either believe in Jesus and are saved or they reject Jesus and they experience the ultimate wrath of God. And that's John chapter 3, verse 36. And Jesus said, the one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That's the danger. The next four in the text... Uh, in, in verse 21, it says, for even, the next for in the text, the next reason for wrath is what? Because men reject God. A God who is known. I mean, at least that he exists. Why? How do we know? Because of creation, he exists. And this rejection takes two forms. First of all, uh, people don't revere God as God. Verse 21. For even though they knew God, they knew that he exists, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They did not esteem him for who he is. You see, that's our calling, is to honor God. We've been created for his glory. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7. If you look at, with me at Psalm 29, verses 1 and 2. It says, ascribe to the Lord, sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord glory. Do his name. Worship the Lord in holy attire. We're supposed to worship him, honor him, and glorify him as God. But we don't. But we don't give thanks either. So our ingratitude increases the offense of our unbelief. I mean, God is the creator and a provider of all. Every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights in whom is no variableness or shadow of turning. James chapter 1, verse 17. And yet, those who don't see God, don't acknowledge God, don't thank God. My, my son and daughter-in-law are, are teaching our grandchildren to honor those who are older than them. You know, you, you look them in the eye and you talk to them and to thank those who provide and give gifts to them. Thank you. Even though as kids, you know, it's like, hey, what do you say? Mm, thank you. You know, they don't, but we're supposed to thank God for who he is and understand him, but, but they don't. They don't. The offense of irreverence, that's the, the, the first way that we reject God is compounded by the fact that people rebel against God. Okay? In, in verse 22, notice the section is but. And I, you know, normally a but's a contrast. Well, this is a contrast. It's a contrast between, between uh, what you do that is a rejection of God and what you don't do that is a, re, uh, as a rejection of God. 
or actually, I think I, I mixed that up. He says, but they, they knew God. They did not. It's what you, they didn't do and what they do do. And both of them manifest a rejection of God. They don't honor him and they don't thank him. But you're thinking, oh, okay, but they do something positive, right? No. <laughs> but they do something that's equally as bad. They do deserve God's wrath, okay? Those who reject God become futile in their speculation. It's like empty-headed. It's like, okay, brainless, uh, they, 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 they empty-headed or vain in their thinking, I think is how uh, the, the ESV puts it. They're, they're separated from the source of truth, which is God, because they deny his existence and they don't thank him. And so what can you do if you don't have the source of truth? Well, you don't speak the truth. You don't know the truth. You don't search the truth. You can't understand the truth. They're empty in their thinking. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 15 uh, puts it this way. They rejected his statutes and his covenant, which he made with the fathers, and his warnings, which he gave them. And they followed idols and became empty and followed the nations that surrounded them, about which the Lord had commanded them not to do as they did. So without God and disregarding God, we just go our own way. Vain in our thinking. And that's what he says. They're vain in their thinking. Um, so vain thinking does this. It exchanges. It trades. Vain thinking trades what's helpful for what's hurtful. Okay. Oh, maybe I shouldn't be, uh, you know, doing stupid stuff because it might affect my body. Uh, I, I might, you know, wake up someday and realize, hey, I'm damaging my body permanently. No, I should do stuff that's helpful. Okay, it also exchanges uh, purity for perversion, satisfaction for emptiness, sanity for lunacy, purpose for what's pointless. Now, what do I mean by that? I like uh, Jeremiah. He said, Jeremiah 2.5, he said, they went far from me and walked after emptiness. Well, you know, people get involved in drug addiction or some other addiction, and that's exchanging what's helpful for what's hurtful. It's not sanity it's lunacy and they may even realize it but they, they seem caught up in it a denial that there are two sexes like that's complicated because God made them male and female but we live in a society where it's like everybody's like well I don't know about that sanity for lunacy Or it's really be a good idea if, if you know, this is really like normal that, uh, that people would like to change their sexual identity? That's not from God. That's those who have, they're, they're, they're futile in their speculations. And then the text goes on, they, their foolish heart is darkened. In Ephesians chapter 4 Verses 17 through 18. So I say this and affirm in the Lord that you are no longer, uh, that you no longer walk just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their minds. Uh, we just talked about that. Being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their hearts. Their foolish heart is darkened. They reject God. 
See, the world says, the way of the world says, hey, just forget about God. You know, you'll be enlightened and you'll, be in, uh, you'll enjoy life and things will be wonderful. And what's true is that the, the rejecting God doesn't illuminate <laughs> or liberate, but it enslaves. It enslaves people in sin. Okay, man's rejection, now man's reliance upon God in verse 22. Another reason for the wrath of God is man's reliance upon God. If you look at verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools. This is our day and age. We have all kinds of experts telling us what's true. And they are actually fools in the biblical sense of the word. Not that they are ignorant. See, fool doesn't mean ignorant. It means spiritually blind. It means spiritually bankrupt. They deny God and his truth. So they adopt worldly philosophies. I think Paul had something to say about this in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. Where is the wise person? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God, has not, has God not made foolish the wisdom of, of the world? And this worldly philosophies and this minds of the world, it, it creeps into the church of Jesus Christ. The, I mean, folks, the critical race theory uh, has been brought into many, many churches to their demise. Because critical race theory is, is basically any uh, critical theory. It's just the application of critical theory to race. But critical theory has been around for a long time. It's just Marxism. And Marxism denies the... the, the the, the natural family. They try to erode the fact that God made them male and female and people, it's healthy and good for people to grow up in a, a home where there's a husband and a wife and, and children. And, and also this critical race theory, it promotes racism. And this gets into the church. And when this gets into the church, it's damaging. So there, the, the fourth reason that's given is in verse 23. Mankind's replacement of God. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And here's one of the main ways they did that. Verse 23. And exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. God made man in his image. And now man makes God in his image. Professing to be wise, we become fools in doing that. Spiritual blindness, men replace their creator with a God of their own. Tozier put, uh, put it this way, he says, idolatry begins in the mind when we pervert or exchange the idea of God for something other than what he really is. Pervert or exchange the idea of God for something uh, that, that, that he's not, he isn't really, that's not really him. Uh, I look at it this way, it's, it's kind of like looking to someone or something else to provide or to be, to me, what only God can be. I'm exchanging God, exchanging him. And, and you know, idolatry has been forbidden. You read the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, right? But interestingly enough, as we teased it out here, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, is almost verbatim, from this text. He says, so that you do not act corruptly and make a carved image or 
uh, for yourselves in the form of what? Any creature representing a male or female, a man, representation of an animal that is on the earth or representation of any winged animal, bird, that flies in the sky. So he's, he's talking about the same stuff, and a representative of anything that crawls on the earth. Exact same things that are spoken of in Romans chapter 1, verse 23. It's forbidden. And we make you know, God's glorious, gloriously incorrupt. What's that mean? He's, he's eternal, immortal. And what do we do? Well, we fashion a God that is corruptible. It's like an image that can tarnish. And I, I love it in Jeremiah chapter 10. It's interesting because he says, you know, you, you take a, a, a tree and you cut it down. And you cut the tree down and you make wood, you cut wood for burning and make a stool with it. And then you take a little piece of it, you carve it out and make an idol of it. And it's like, So why don't you just throw that one in the fire? I mean, what makes that piece of wood different than another piece of wood? It's, it's foolishness. Every substitute is corruptible. It's fragile. It's temporal. You see how irrational it is to abandon the creator for the creation. Uh, we, we bought our house in uh, October of 2017, and we remodeled the house, and we did something, I did something that I thought I would never do. I took perfectly good oak trim and tore it out corrupt un- incorruptible oak trim and put particle board it's called mdf oh but it looks nice you know <laughs> take a few drops of water and it's rotten it's worthless it's just particle board we 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 exchanged the incorruptible for the corruptible and this is what we do in uh, human beings do in relationship to God it's a far greater consequence a far more difficult consequence men's first substitute for God is himself you know in the form of an image of a man which Voltaire put it this way sarcastically but accurately God made man in his own image and man returned the favor Think Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> and God punished him how? Oh, you're going you're gonna to chew grass like a cow. You're going to walk around for seven years on all fours. You know, and grow really long hair and look really gross. And then he woke up and God brought him back to life. And whoo, he realized, yeah, that was stupid. We better worship the God of Daniel. And then birds, which... This is not just drawn out of any, anywhere. The idea is that they made birds. The eagles in Rome were venerated as gods. Okay? And four-footed animals, bulls in Egypt, were held up to be gods in other places. Okay? And crawling things. Bees and black ants are venerated in Hinduism. It's like, whoa. See, we, we also worship not just these kinds of things, but we worship our health. And we worship our pleasure, and we worship our wealth, and we worship our power and our success. These things we also elevate in worship. And so we see, first of all, that God talks and reveals the wrath of God. He gives us the reasons for the wrath of God. And then we get the realization of the wrath of God in the last few verses, the response of God's wrath. And what I'm about to say is actually the revelation of God's wrath. What we see teased out here are the consequences of our corruption. The therefore, in verse 24, introduces the first 
of three sobering consequences of God's abandonment of those who have abandoned him. I said that again. God's abandonment of those who have abandoned him. Because it says three times, and each one of these consequences is a manifestation of wickedness that's introduced by the same phrase, God gave them over. Verse 24, verse 26, and verse 28. God gave them over. He abandoned them. He turned them loose to experience the natural consequences of their refusal to accept him and their rejection of him and their replacement of him. And so here's what they get. Because they abandoned God and accepted their idols, God gave them over. Verse 24, therefore, points us back to what? They rejected God and, abandoned and, and, and replaced Him. So what happens? God gave them over. And He gave them over by withdrawing His protective hand. By allowing the destructive consequences of sin to run their course. He says, sin corrodes. Sin erodes and sin implodes. Marriages, families, churches, communities, and countries. Sin does this. Why, 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 would, why would somebody go around with a, a gun in random places in Massachusetts and just start slaughtering people? Sin erodes, corrodes, corrupts. Why is it that... that, that people are lawless in major cities. I mean, I saw this YouTube video of people in this iPhone store, and they're just running out, and the police are trying to get them, and they're just running, 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 running. I thought it was great justice because Apple had, everybody, had, the, had the codes for all those phones, and they just shut them off. But it's lawlessness. The war in Ukraine and in Gaza. This is evidence of, of God's of, of sinfulness that, that erodes and corrodes and implodes society. God gave them over, and he, here, here, he gave them over to immorality. It's a, basically the pursuit of sexual immorality and sensuality, the kind of stuff that's mentioned in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 24. And guess what? It brings dishonor to their bodies. And we don't talk about that much, but the the hypersexualization of our culture actually degrades and dehumanizes the human body. I, I read a statistic that 70% of the people in the United States think that some level of pornography use is acceptable. What does that do? You talk about, I, I mean, and, and it's like um, objectification of the human body, that the body is just an object. There's not a real soul or a person behind it. That's the evidence of it. And then you, you, you could look and we, we could go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, where Paul says that when you commit immorality and sexual immorality, you sin not just against God, but against your own body. So this is the corruption that takes care, takes place. It demeans, it degrades, it dehumanizes and dishonors the body. And then in verse 25, Paul comes back to this favorite word, I think, in this passage is for, or because, all right, in verse 25. For, Paul reiterates the reason for the impurity. He said it previously, now he repeats it again. He said it in verse 23, now he says it in verse 25. Why is it that this is happening? Because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. The truth of God. He's real. He's supreme. 
He's the master. He's our ruler. He should be submitted to. He is in charge. And the, the truth of God for a lie. What's the lie? Don't have to listen to God. In fact, if I want to, I can make myself God. And that works better for me. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 14. Uh, Jeremiah says, every person is stupid, devoid of... That's us. Like every person. Okay. Every person is stupid, devoid of knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his cast metal images are deceitful, and there is no breath in them. We serve a living God, the true and living God. And we exchange the corruptible for the incorruptible. Okay. Unbelievers also worshiped and served the corruptible creature rather than the creator. Now, I'm going to say something here, maybe going to uh, set a few of you on fire, but that's okay, because it, I, think it's, I think it's really true. Climate change activism is not Christian stewardship. Now, I'm not opposed to Christian stewardship of what God gave us in the earth, but climate change activism is actually earth worship. It's Worshiping the creature or actually the created thing rather than the creator. This is the epitome of, of, of this verse. And then Paul just kind of like comes up for air when he says the, they worship the creature rather than the creator who is, just, just be reminded here, who is blessed forever. Amen. He's still God. Even though we deny him, even though we suppress him, even though we put him down, he is blessed forever. He is still God. Then he goes on in verses 26 and 27, what's the next consequence of this corruption, which is indulgence, or I've labeled it indulgence, but in verse 26 you see it says, because or for this reason man rejected and replaced true God. Well, that's the reason. For this reason, he's pointing back to verse 25, because man replaced and rejected God, what's the next consequence of that? The next consequence of that is homosexuality. Okay? I mean, it doesn't make any bones about it. It's not hard to read the text. In fact, if you change this text, you are actually making God to be a liar because God says in this text that part of the judgment of God, part of the wrath of God upon those who reject Him and replace Him is this perversion of homosexuality. Okay. He gave them over to degrading passions, homosexuality, and guess what? Homosexuality is like the epitome of exchanging the truth of God for a lie. Because the truth of God says that it's an unnatural use. It unnaturally inverts, subverts, and perverts God's created order. Male and female made he them. And he brought the man to the woman and they should be united in marriage. That's God's plan. And anything other than that plan is an unnatural use. And he's talking about intimacy here. Let's not make it what it isn't. And the men are no better. In fact, they're actually worse because it says they, they burn in their desires one for another. See, there is, and it's not a secret, although it's held down, that there's a heightened sense of promiscuity and violence that characterizes male homosexuality. 
I'm not going to get into all the gory details here, but it is, uh, I mean, there's a lot of uh, self-sadomasochism, sadism and masochism, self-inflicted wounds and inflicting wounds on other people in the, in the guise of this activity. It is not good. One, uh, the, according to the Family Research Institute, violence goes hand in hand with the gay lifestyle. And I would say that the widespread celebration and promotion of, of this and other sexual perversions shows the depth of degradation to which we have sunk. It shows the depth, of, the, the extent of God's wrath upon humanity. This is not, this is not final judgment yet, you know, but this is the judgment of God on our culture and on our world. The current presidential administration has at least 200 openly gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender people uh, appointed. That's a platforming of perversion. Now, it doesn't just happen in the, in the culture at large. There's a large major church. If I mentioned the name of the church, you would know the name of the church that on December, September 28th and 29th had a conference. And at this conference, one of the speakers at the conference was a man by the name of David Gashi, a Christian ethicist who uh, has shifted his views on homosexuality and transgenderism. In 2014, he spoke, uh, so he spoke at a conference at this church, and he argues for covenantal marital lifelong monogamy. That's just fancy language we're saying. As long as you're in it for the long haul, it doesn't matter if you're married to a, a, a person of the same sex. And he argues for LGBTQ identified individuals and for full LGBTQ inclusion in the church. Major evangelical church had this conference. Church that has thousands of people on uh, many campuses that meet in it. And I say this because we see that it, it, it's repeatedly and plainly condemned in Scripture. Now, back up, take a breath. Every one of us is a sinner. Okay, that's the point of this long diatribe here. We're all a sinner. And each of us has, and some, most of us have some like proclivity to certain uh, temptations, like there's certain things that like, oh, I'm more drawn to, to be tempted in that than another. But I, I, I agree with MacArthur who says no person is born a homosexual any more than anyone is born a thief or a murderer. Now that doesn't mean that, that, that people don't have uh, tendencies and aren't drawn to that kind of thing. I'm not saying that. But even when we denounce it as a perversion, it doesn't preclude the opportunity to show love, compassion, and sensitivity to the people. That's not what I'm saying. It's not either or. It's this is the truth, and you must walk in the truth, but you still show love and compassion and sensitivity. I don't think that means platforming that uh, in, in the church. It means being sensitive and compassionate, but calling sin, sin. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, if you commit this sin, you, you're ultimately, this is the wrath of God here in, in Romans chapter 1, is that sin. But ultimately, if you don't repent of that sin, then you go to hell. But that's not the only one. Okay, so don't get that delusion either. I mean, any sin that we don't repent of ultimately and turn faith and trust in Christ will condemn us to an eternity apart from God. 
So let's keep the balance there, okay? But then he says the due penalty is that they receive it in their own bodies. And I think that's pretty obvious. I mean, through disease and the damages that happens, you know, AIDS and STDs and all this kind of stuff naturally comes upon people in this lifestyle. That's just the, the consequence of it. And he says that's part of the wrath of God upon them. And then finally, insolence, which is unrepentant pride in verses 28 through 32. It's manifest, first of all, in the actions of defiance. Notice in verse uh, 28, he says, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer... God gave them, okay, there, why, did they, why did God give them over? Because they didn't see fit to acknowledge God. To do the things which are not proper. <laughs> Stupid stuff. Sin. They do the things that are, are not proper. They gave them to, he gave them over to a depraved mind. That's what he did, a depraved mind. Which moves sinners to do what's not proper. And all indicates the scope. All unrighteousness. All wickedness. And then you just go down the category. So the, the righteousness and wickedness is kind of like a catch-all. It just summarizes everything that he's about to say. And these are pretty much self-describing. So I'm not going to go into detail on what these sins are. Okay? They're there. It's, 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 that's what happens. And this is what happens in the result is that you have people marching, hundreds of thousands of people in London marching, calling for the destruction of the Jewish people. You could read through the list. We read through it once. I'm not going to read through it again. It's like, that's what happens. Malice and greed and anger and pride and insensitivity. And don't think for a moment that we aren't capable of this. That's the point. We are these people. Now, in Christ, we've been redeemed so that we're no longer the slaves of these sins. But we're certainly capable of them. And I hope the events of the last month makes that very clear. That even those who profess faith in Christ are capable of the most heinous sins. This is the wrath of God on these people. And then the attitude of defiance. This is what gets, it's like, wow, okay, so you, 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 you engage in this activity. And that's what's so concerning, disconcerting to me about what's going on in our culture. is because we have all kinds of, all the stuff we've just gone through is happening in our culture and within us as individuals, and yet, you know, he says, here's what makes it worse. Not only that you participate in this stuff, but that you celebrate it. Um, now, those are my words, but look at verse 32. And although they know the ordinances of God, how do they know that? There is innate within every human being an understanding of right and wrong. Eternity has been written in our heart, so we have some sense of God's justice. That though those who practice those things are worthy of death, okay, the practices of such things is God's wrath. But if they keep practicing them and they don't repent, guess what? There's death. That's ultimate separation from God. And they know who practices those things is worthy of death. And yet, guess what? They practice them. And they cheer on other people who do the same thing. Again, that's my paraphrase of verse 32. I mean, I have heard people joke. Yeah, I know I'm going to hell. I mean, you've heard them too. And say, yeah, yeah, it's going to be a great party there. Not a party I want to be in. It's going to be terrible. There'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth for eternity. And I don't want anybody going there. And so I say this 
What he says here is the indictment against humanity. And the, 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 the joy is the magnitude of the wrath and the horrific nature of God of sin is like, that's who we are. Which highlights the marvel of God's mercy that delivers us from it. Not just now, but for eternity. And if you put your faith or your trust in Christ, that's what he says. The righteous by faith shall live. That will live free from the slavery to this kind of nonsense. But always tempted this side of glory to engage in it. And we have the victory in Christ. That's what he says. Paul says it in Ephesians chapter 2. You who are children of wrath have been made alive in Christ. In Christ. And so, if you're here this morning, I want you to know that all of us are this, these people. Either at one time we were these people, so let's just don't pat ourselves on the back and say, yeah, well, I don't, that's not my problem. Could be. It was. That's your nature. That's who you are. That's not who I am as, at the core of who we are. But we can be delivered, and we are delivered by Christ. Praise God. And I want you to be too. And you can be if you would turn from your sin and trust Christ and what he did on the cross. So we remember when we take the bread and the cup, we remember what he did for us so we understand we must see the essence of our sin and our wickedness and our disease so that we can marvel at the beauty of what Christ has done for us. And you know, so when we start, we start with the gospel, we got to start with sin. What do we need to be saved from? Oh, you want to be saved? No, I'm good. Uh, no, you're not good. And so as we take some time, I want you to take some moments and reflect. And just, if you don't know Christ, to realize where you're headed. And let the wickedness that's in your heart and soul turn your heart to the only God who can bring you salvation. And if you know Christ as your Savior, then rejoice in what Christ has done for you. And also reflect on the fact that I could be going down doing stupid stuff too, but I need God's, God's grace. And then when time is right, you get up from your seats. There's a table at the back. There's a table here. Come and take the bread and take the cup if you know Christ as your Savior. Let's pray. Father, oh, thank you for your word. It's a hard word, Father. I thank you that you have delivered many of us here from these particular manifestations and consequences of your wrath that are for today. And you've delivered us from your wrath in eternity. And I pray now for those who are caught in these sins that you would work in their hearts and draw them to yourself and help them see, help them see that they're headed for an eternity that's a messed up thing and they want that they would turn and trust you. And those of us who know you, we'd rejoice and rely upon you to keep us from falling back into sin. We pray in Jesus' name.